Psalm 3, verse 1 says, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Selah. I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people that have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me. O my God, thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Selah. Psalm 3 praises God for his deliverance, his salvation, hearing his prayers, hearing his cries, responding to his pleas, his, his petitions, his begging of the Lord. Psalm 3 was written by King David to praise him for hearing his prayers and delivering him from the problems that he was in. The Bible tells us that the third psalm is a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. So when you read Psalm 3, as you're reading these verses, where King David is acknowledging that there are many that rise up against him, that there are many that trouble him, that he is surrounded, that there are those that are saying God's not going to help him now. As he's writing these words and then he turns around and he praises God for being his shield, his glory, his deliverer, as he's writing these words, he's on the run. It's amazing when you think about it that King David has gone from being a king in a palace, running a kingdom, to being a fugitive, to being on the run. Having lost everything, at this point he doesn't have his kingdom, he doesn't have his palace, he doesn't have access to the treasuries of Israel. Um, he, is, he, he has left his, his, his wives behind, I mean he has left everything behind. He has lost everything, his world is crumbling, everything is falling apart, nothing's going right right now. Nothing is good right now. Yet in the midst of all this, King David is still praising God. He's praising God. He's praising God for his deliverance. He's praising God for hearing his prayers. And he knows that God is going to hear his prayers. He knows that God is going to hear him plea. He's going to hear the request. He's going to hear the, the pleas that God, that David puts up before God. He knows this. He knows that God will hear him. He knows that God will deliver him. And David knew this because he knew God. He knew God's nature. He knew God's character. And he knew God's plan. Everything in David's life at this point had fallen apart. He's lost everything. He's got a few close friends that are with him. But other than that, he has lost everything. Yet he still trusts God. And he trusts that God will take care of him, that God will protect him, that God will restore him. He trusted God. That's faith. We look at life today, and sometimes life just falls apart, doesn't it? Sometimes things go really bad. Sometimes 
our lives, just everything that we thought that was important, things that we thought that we couldn't live without, the things that were our bedrock, the things that we looked at for our strength are taken away and we feel like we've lost everything. You ever go through a time like that? Yeah. Like you say, it can't get much worse than this, and then it does. Yeah. And you learn to quit saying that because life starts to take that as a challenge. It can't get much worse. Oh, yeah, watch this. Those politicians can't be any dumber than they are, and then they, they get dumber. You know, I mean, like, everything just continually gets worse. That's where King David is. Yet, when David is down and out, when he is on the run, when he has lost everything, he's not saying, oh, woe is me. He's still praising God. That's amazing. That's something we should learn to do. We should learn to be able to look to the Lord and praise him and love him and trust him and look forward to his deliverance even when everything in our lives fall apart. How do you do that? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Another thing to keep in mind about this passage, we're, taking, we're still setting the context for this. David is on the run. Absalom is chasing him. Absalom, his son, is going to kill him because Absalom is trying to take over the kingdom. This is a rebellion. This is an uprising. This is a coup. Okay, this is not good. David's on the run here. Absalom is going to kill him. How did we get to this point? How did we get to a point where King David is on the run from his son Absalom, and he's about to lose his kingdom if he hasn't lost it already? How do we get there? We have to remember that to a degree, David's calamity was self-inflicted. Absalom's rebellion and the people's uprising against David tied directly back to King David's sin with Bathsheba. The sin with Bathsheba was so egregious, it was probably more egregious than anything that had happened in the royal family at that time. You take a king who sees a woman who is the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers, he takes the woman, has the soldier sent to the front lines to die, and has many of his other finest fighters killed in the process. That's egregious. That's a horrific sin. And to put things in the way that David would understand just how severe his sin was, God sent Nathan the prophet, who told the story you may remember in the scripture of the rich man, who had uh, flocks of lambs, herds of goats, livestock over all the hills, but yet there was one poor family that had just one little lamb that they loved. And when the rich man had guests over, instead of taking one of his many, he took the one little lamb that the poor family had. And that David saw the egregiousness and how horrific that transgression of that rich man against that poor family was that he wanted that rich man totally 100% destroyed and like no memory of him ever left. And he wants to, this, this, rich, this fictitious rich man who stole this lamb from this family, he wants to destroy this guy in the worst way possible. And Nathan says, you are the man. You are the man. That's how serious David's sin was. And that sin with Bathsheba set off a chain of events in David's home that led to some pretty imaginable things, unimaginable things happening between his children. We're not going to go into all that today. But there is a series of horrendous things that happened with David's children that that chain of events was set in motion 
when David sinned with Bathsheba. And it is those events that sparked Absalom's rebellion. It would be very easy in looking at David's story as to paint him as the hero and Absalom as the victim. Excuse me, Absalom as the villain. You could also make the point that maybe Absalom was trying to do the right thing here. Maybe David's the victim, or the victim, the villain. It's very easy to try to pick sides and say, this is the victim, this is the persecutor. This is the good guy, this is the bad guy. This is the hero, this is the villain. It's very easy to try to choose sides, but in a world where there is none righteous, no, not one. In a world where all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, where every mouth is stopped and all become guilty before God, there are no heroes and there are no villains. It's easy to paint ourselves as the victims, to consider ourselves the good guys. But we are not good. The Bible tells us, in me dwells no good thing. And we are not always the victims. Our calamity many, many times is brought on by our own choices. Our calamity is 100% brought on by the sin of the world to which we willingly contribute. We're part of the problem. Yet the amazing thing is that David, knowing that he is guilty, knowing about the sin in his past, the sin in his life, and the way that his sin has brought on this problem, he still looks to the Lord and he trusts the Lord not only for deliverance, but also for his forgiveness. Can we, in our calamity, remember God's forgiveness and then praise him, worship him, trust him, and call out to him? Do we have that kind of faith? You read Psalm 3, there's also a gospel connection here. You read verses 1 and 2, How are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me? Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. And when you read those words, when I read those words, I think about the Pharisees saying he saved others. Let him save himself. If he truly be the son of God, let him save himself and come off the cross. The thief on the cross, one of the thieves, said the exact same thing. If you are the son of God, save yourself and hey, hook us up in the process. You see this mocking in verses 1 and 2. David's being mocked. We're being mocked. This same mocking was poured out on Christ when he hung on the cross paying for our sins. You read verse 5. I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. The Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was laid in the tomb. He was laid down. He slept. That's a Hebrew ancient Bible time euphemism for dying. The Apostle Paul said, I would not have you to be ignorant toward those who sleep. So I'm not saying Christ merely passed out. I'm saying when you see the going down, the sleeping, and the awaking again, there's a picture of the gospel there, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 8. Salvation belongs unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. We're talking about his victory over sin and death and his bringing salvation to us. There is a gospel, there is a gospel fabric to the progression of Psalm 3. 
So with all that background, with all that background, let's dig into Psalm 3. Like Leland, what did we just do? That was the introduction. Don't worry. You'll be out of here by lunch. Three things. One, let's look at the source of hopelessness. You ever feel hopeless? Many there are that rise up against me. They have surrounded me round about. There are many that say that there is no help for him. There's no hope for him. There's no help for him in God. You ever feel like that? Like, like your entire world is falling apart and people are like shaking the finger at you. At first they try to be kind of sympathetic, but then they back away and then they don't want you to talk to you anymore because they're afraid that your curse will rub off on them. They, they act like you got some sort of a contagious disease. And, and so, the, no, oh, hey, good to see you. Oh, look, I'm busy. You know, I mean, it's one of those situations. What's, that's hopelessness. What's the source of that? What's the source of hopelessness? Second thing we want to look at is the remedy of hopelessness. How do we fix it? And then we're going to build upon that concept with the salvation of the Lord. So let's talk about the source of hopelessness. In verses 1 and 2, Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they which rise up against me. Many there be which say of my soul, there is no help for him in God. Selah. Who, who is rising up and who is troubling the psalmist? Who is troubling King David? It's his enemies, Absalom, and those who have joined up with Absalom to fight against David. Some of his most trusted advisors went on the side of Absalom and betrayed King David and all of this. His enemies are who troubles him. Who troubled Christ? It was his persecutors, those who gave him over to be crucified by the Romans. The ungodly, the sinners, the scorners, in both cases, in King David's case and in Christ's case. Who were the persecutors? Who were the enemies? Who were the opposition? It was the ungodly, the sinners, the scorners. That's why you go back to Psalm 1. It says, blessed is he that walks not in the way of the, in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful. We're talking about people who have given themselves over to Satan's lies and to their sin, to the lust of their flesh, and they are, in this case, oppressing King David, who, by the way, was guilty of the same thing. They oppressed Christ because he pointed out the sin in their lives and their need for redemption. When in a state of despair, it is important to know the voices. Who are the voices? When you're in a state of despair... There's two voices that are going into your head. And may, those voices may come through people that are around you. It may come from your heart, what you're feeling inside. It may come from spiritual sources around you. But there are two voices. And you have to learn to distinguish which voice is which. The Holy Spirit will confront your sin. And the Holy Spirit will correct your sin. Satan, your opponent, your enemy, your opposition will be the voice that will tell you you're worthless, you're horrible, and there is no hope for you. One of these voices is going to be teaching you, growing you, steering you. The other voice is going to be beating you. We have to learn to identify those voices. 
Oftentimes, in times of hopelessness, we listen to the voice that tells us we're worthless. We listen to the voice that tells us that we deserve what we're getting. We listen to the voice that tells us that we will never correct this thing. We will never beat this thing. We will never overcome this thing. Leland, you're just going to be a, you're a, a single-wide trailer park piece of garbage. That's, that, that's the voice that was in my head back when I was on the campus of Stephen F. Austin and Kilgore College. You're just a redneck. It's all you're going to be. Don't try to do anything better. And there's nothing wrong with living in a trailer, and there's nothing wrong with working with your hands. Don't, don't take anything. But spiritually speaking, we're all more than that. The voice of the Holy Spirit is the voice that got a hold of me in November of 2002 that told me that I had been blessed with some of the best Bible teaching on the planet growing up, and I was wrong for ignoring it. And I needed to get back into it. That was the voice of the Holy Spirit. We've got to learn to discern those two voices. That first voice that told me that I was human garbage and I'd never be anything else is the voice that also led me into drugs and alcohol and all the other stuff I don't tell you all about. The second voice is the one that got me in the church the following morning where I made my profession of faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. We have to learn to identify those two different voices and know what they're saying. Why do they speak? What happened? David's enemies were created by his sin. Christ's enemies wanted to cover their own sin. It's important to see the connection between sin and hopelessness. Because God did not give us hopelessness when he created us. God did not give us hopelessness when he created Adam. He didn't give us hopelessness when he created Eve. He didn't give you hopelessness when he formed you in the womb when he formed you in your mother's womb. The source of hopelessness is sin. The source of hopelessness is rebellion against God. It leads to that hopelessness every time. It's important to see the connection between sin and hopelessness. I was watching a movie back in my darker days, a movie that I will not name, nor will I, nor will I endorse it, nor that I want y'all anywhere near the movie. But in the movie, one of the characters says, where there is no hope, there is dope. And the idea was when you're hopeless, you turn to dope. And if you struggle with drug addiction, you may be inclined to agree with that. But let me tell you something. It was the sin and the hopelessness that drove you to dope, but it's also the dope that kept you in and drove you further into sin and further into hopelessness. You've got to see that correlation. You've got to see that connection. You've got to see that causation. These are things that God wants us to reflect on. He, these are things that he wants us to be aware of. The psalmist says... Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they which rise up against me. Many there be which save my soul. There is no help for him in God. Selah. It's important that that word selah is there. It means stop and reflect. Go back. Read that again. Ponder that. Okay. Why does God want us pondering this? Why does he want us going back and reading that again? Why does he want us thinking about that again? Because he wants us seeing the cause of the hopelessness. He wants us seeing where King David was and what got him there. He wants us to understand the voices that are speaking and those who are rising up, why they're rising up, and what's driving this opposition. He wants us to understand all this. And as we understand it, we can begin to compartmentalize and then identify the causes of our hopelessness, the causes of our problem, and then we can see the remedy of it. The first step in any problem 
in solving a problem is to realize that you do indeed have a problem. So we'll turn to the remedy. This is where it really starts to get good. Verse 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, the lifter up of mine head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. There's that word again. Selah. But thou, O Lord. Verses 1 and 2. Everybody's rising up against me. They're oppressing me. They're telling me, I don't have any help in God. There's no hope for me whatsoever. But thou, O Lord. Notice the contrast there. But thou. The word but always brings with it the notion of a contrast. I don't say Josh is a really cool guy, but he's also nice. Josh is a really great son, but he's also in, 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 uh, obedient. That doesn't make any sense. I'd say Josh is a really good son, and he's obedient. Josh is a really cool guy, and he's nice to people. You see what I'm saying? The word but always carries a contrast. There's always a carve out there when you see the word but. But thou, O Lord, and the, and the psalmist says in verse 3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory, and the lifter up of mine head. The rest of the world is condemning King David. The rest of the world is rising up against him. The rest of the world is saying there is no hope for him, that there is no help in God. David says, many rise up against me, but contrary to the many that are rising up against me, but you, O Lord, are my shield, my glory, and the lifter up of my head. You see, David sees his calamity. He sees his problem. He sees his opposition, but he sees the Lord. And he turns his back on the opposition. He turns his back on the problems. He's, he turns his back on the suffering. He turns his back to the enemy and the scoffers, and he turns toward the Lord. Contrast that from Peter, who in the New Testament stepped out of the boat. Give him credit for stepping out of the boat. But contrast that from Peter who steps out onto the waters and is walking on the water and he looks away from the Lord at the waves that are rising up around him and begins to sink. King David, had he stepped out of that boat, would have turned away from the waves and would have looked back toward the Lord based on this psalm. You wonder. You wonder why God said that David was a man after his own heart. You wonder what motivated God to say such a thing about a man with the things that David had in his background? It's because David knew to trust the Lord to the point that even when he created the waves himself, he was a man that loved and trusted God so much that he turned his back on the waves as opposed to one of the Lord's most beloved disciples. The remedy to hopelessness is to turn our back on it. We wallow in hopelessness. The more we focus on it, the more we focus on the hopelessness, the more we focus on the waves, the more we focus on the scoffers, the more we focus on the opposition, the more we become preoccupied with this, the more we will wallow in hopelessness. And that is the more that we will be staring at the waves. That's the more we're going to be complaining about those who rise up against us, those who say that there is no hope for us in the Lord. Get off of Facebook. Because what you're going to find on Facebook, yes, Tony Evans is on Facebook. 
Um, J. Vernon McGee's on Facebook. <laughs> he passed away in 1988. He's on Facebook. Like everybody's got a Facebook. He's on good stuff on Facebook. Okay, I, I get that. But what do you find most of the time on Facebook? You find people who are complaining, people who are scoffing. You find headlines with ungodly news about horrible things that are going on. You find where governments are taking steps to silence our voices. You, you find all these bad, you find all this bad news, gossip. You find hurtful things, slanderous things being said. You, you find all kinds of hate and division on social media. Something happens in Calgary, Canada. And that's proof that people in Texas are bad people. I've never made those connections. But people on Facebook are making those connections. And you can read that and you just, oh, this is right. oh don't even start reading about local politics. You know, oh, county judge and commissioner. That, that's, that's looking at the waves, people. That's looking at the waves. I'm not saying you shouldn't be informed. I'm saying that you got to know when to turn your back on all that and to turn toward the Lord. Get a Bible app. I can't help it. I got to scroll on my phone. It's, it's a bad, it's a bad thing. You know, just you, you, when when you get a when you get a down moment where nothing's happening, just kind of natural, just to whip it out and just start. You know what? Am I am I alone in this? Okay. Open the Bible app. I got U version. You can send me a friend request on it. I'm not very active on the social media aspect of it, just because I don't know. Whip out the Bible app and scroll through a passage of scripture. Scroll through a, a devotional that one of the great theologians of our day, and some of them are not great theologians, but they're still on there. So, you know, scroll through a, scroll through a devotional that's been written. You know, the, turn your back on the waves of this world and the scoffers and the ungodly and the sinners and turn toward the Lord. Put your focus on him. Verse 3, But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of mine head. Seeing the Lord as our shield, our glory, and the lifter up of our head will lift us out of hopelessness. Seeing what God has done for you will lift you from hopelessness. King David is so good at this when he's writing the Psalms, when he, when he is in a state of trouble, when he's in a state of panic, when he's having this, this, this moment of anxiety and he's turning his attention to the Lord. What does he do? You see him time and time again in the Psalms. He's saying, you, Lord, have delivered me. You have heard my prayers. You have heard my cries. You have delivered me many times. You have taken me from humble beginnings, put me in charge of the kingdom. You have delivered your people. You have saved your people. You have blessed your people. He's going back through all the blessings over the years. It would help us if we would do the same thing in our own personal lives. If I would go back to that moment when I trusted Jesus Christ as my, as my personal Savior, or as Hebrews 10.23 says, to hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering. To go back to the times when we were in need and we were in want and money just kind of appeared out of thin air. Uh, whether it was the miscellaneous $500 check, there was a cashier's check, so it kind of had an anonymous source to it that showed up in our mailbox back when I was in seminary, or the $200 that blew up in the front yard on West Commerce Street, which I'm like 99.9% .9 sure belonged to my landlord, but he denied ownership of it because that's just the kind of guy he was. Okay, I mean, you know, the Lord always took care of us. And I know that, you know, you always hear the stories of financial prosperity and financial blessings. Sometimes there are just times that God came to us spiritually and just, and just comforted us on a spiritual level. Um, those are times, let me tell you about some of the time. Y'all don't want to sit here all day, and I understand that. And you don't want to listen to my problems, and I understand that too. 
But going back to those times of blessings and seeing how God has been the lifter up of your head over the years, that will bring you back to a state of hope. It'll bring you out of the hopelessness. In verse 4, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. Once again, King David is proclaiming how God has heard him in the past and how God is hearing him this time. He cried out to him, and the Lord heard him from his holy hill. This is an encouragement to us to continue our prayer lives, to continue to go to the Lord in prayer, to shut everything down for a minute. You got the Bible app open now. Good job. Now turn that off and put the phone back in the pocket. Spend some time in prayer, praying to God. And this is a lesson I'm, I've learned fairly recently. Because when I prayed, I always prayed, thanking God for his blessing. Come up with a couple of blessings. Thank you, God, for the beautiful weather today. Thank you, God, for the blessings you've given me. Here are my requests. Grocery list. And I kind of felt guilty for that. Do y'all ever feel guilty for the grocery list prayer? There's not, I, give God the grocery list prayer. The Bible says to make your request made known unto God. So I'm not trying to steer you away from that. What I am trying to steer you toward is when you are preparing yourself to go to the Lord in prayer. To stop and count some blessings. And truly give God some praise and some adoration. And offer thanks for some real tangible blessings that are in your life. Lift up a prayer at some point, not asking for something, but just thanking God for something. Now you may go back and ask him for something five minutes later. Again, I'm not telling you not to ask him for things. What I'm saying is let's shift our focus in our prayer lives more to praising him and thanking him while we cry out to him and, and request our situations be resolved. Am I making sense? Yes. There's an encouragement to do that. And that brings us to our final point. The salvation of the Lord. In verse 5. The psalmist says, I laid me down and slept. I awaked for the Lord sustained me. For King David, he's hiding. He's hiding in caves. He's hiding in the wilderness. He lays down and sleeps, and if he goes, lays down and goes to sleep at any moment, his enemies could run upon them, surprise attack, kill him in his sleep. And every time he lays down and closes his eyes, it could be the last time that ever happens. Yet, King David is still laying down and going to sleep because he trusts God to protect him in his sleep. He saw this in his battles with King Saul. Now he's seeing it with Absalom. He lays himself down and he sleeps, and when he wakes up in the morning, he knows he wakes up in the morning because God sustained him. We take it for granted that we're going to wake up in the morning. When I go to bed at night, I have no reason to believe that I'm not going to wake up in the morning. I have got a brick house, and I am surrounded by dogs. And there's lots of things that would create a lot of noise to startle me awake should anything start to happen to me in the evening, in the, in the nighttime. King David is out there in the wilderness with limited ability to defend himself, to shelter himself, yet he knows that if he goes to sleep and he wakes up, it'll be because the Lord sustained him. The Lord protected him. The Lord, well, he says, the Lord sustained him. I laid me down and slept. I wait for the Lord sustained me. Jesus Christ gave up the ghost, commended his spirit into God's hands. And Christ gave his life, was buried, 
And he was raised up, the Bible tells us, by God the Father. Just as David was able to trust the Lord to protect him in his sleep, we can trust the Lord with the things that we cannot afford. And just as Christ was risen up on the third day to the glory of the Father, we can trust the Lord to raise us up on that day. So suppose I do go to sleep tonight and my house collapses on me and I die. That's not very likely. Random heart attack in the middle of the night, that is, that is more of a probability. If I go to sleep tonight and I don't wake up in the morning, I will wake up. It'll just be in the presence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Look forward to your coming resurrection. Mm-hmm. Look forward to the day that you close your eyes to this world and you open your eyes to the next. In verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all mine enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Christ will have the final victory. He will overcome sin. He will defeat evil. This victory will be final and it will be forever. The stuff that we are dealing with in this time is only temporary. In verse 6, Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessing is upon thy people. Mm-hmm. Selah. Which means we need to spend time contemplating that. We need to go back over this. Salvation is God's. And he gives it to whom he will. We don't own it. It's not something that we're owed. We've been given a franchise. But the franchise has been given to us by God, but he owns it. He, it has pleased God to give salvation to all who repent and believe. And to seal and secure that salvation for all who repent and believe. Salvation only comes from turning away from sin and trusting God for salvation through what Jesus Christ did on the cross for us. The salvation of the Lord. I've never quite read Psalm 3 like this. But when you look at this, and we learned a lot of this during Sunday school this morning, it's funny how all that keeps lining up. I'm surprised Brother Jim hasn't accused me of writing my sermon during Sunday school yet. But what we learned from Psalm 3 is the hopeless and the anxiety are real. The calamity is real. Your anxiety is legit. Your, your trauma is legit. Nobody's telling you, well, some people are telling you, we're going to ignore them. No one's telling you out of the Bible that you're wrong for being hurt or you're wrong for feeling bad or you're wrong for being scared or you're wrong for wanting healing. No one's telling you that you're wrong for that. What Psalm 3 tells us is to turn your back on that and to trust God for the healing, for the deliverance, for the salvation, for the restoration. Let's stand.